Welcome to the State of the Outdoors podcast, where we tell you straight what's going on at the local, state, and federal level that impacts our outdoor heritage. Our intent is to inform and empower sportsmen and women. We want to encourage them to get involved and be part of the process. We will try not to editorialize or sensationalize the issues of the day. My partner in this venture is none other than our fourth district commissioner for the Kentucky chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Mr. Ben Bishop. Uh, today, I wish I could say we were podcasting together over a beer, but we are podcasting remotely because of the COVID virus. Ben, how you doing, man? What's up, brother? I'm doing great. Just We just finished uh, you know, wrapping up modern, modern gun season here. I was fortunate enough to take a couple of those and uh, already started to eat on those a little bit, so that's always good. I... Uh, I, I, I think you saw the picture I'd sent where I smoked that entire rear quarter. Yep. Gosh, man, that was that was one of the best ways I've ever had venison fixed in my life. It was just one of uh, one of Stephen Rinella's recipes out of one of the guidebooks, and it was it called for a bear ham. But I was like, you know, I can make this into venison, and man, it was it was amazing. Mm. And so now, since modern guns over. You know, waterfowl's kicking off. Uh, actually, the actual season started today, the seventh, and uh, so that's that's kicking off. And then we got late muzzleloader coming up, so I think I'm gonna hit the woods again with my uh, Kentucky long rifle that I built this past year and see if I can't get a get another doe or two down. How about you? Oh man, I'm super excited about you and that long rifle. Uh, you've actually inspired me to uh, to get back into the uh, um, loose powder, open sight, uh, our heritage kind of long rifle, uh, hawking kind of deal. I'm not going to yeah. go with the, I'm not going to go with the long rifle. I'm going to go with my hero, Jeremiah Johnson's, uh, Missouri river hawking, but, mm-hmm. uh, but you've inspired me brother. And I'm excited about those uh, deer you were able to take with cap and ball, man. That's, that's pretty badass. Congratulations. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. I mean, that's, they're, those things are so fun to shoot. They're terrible to clean, but they are fun to shoot. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Anything worth doing always involves work. So, um, exactly. Yeah, I'm excited about the waterfowl season coming up. Just like you, uh, I'm blessed to have you know guys like Larry Richards and Brian Mackey and some others that are mentoring me into becoming a waterfowl hunter. So. I really honestly don't have to put in the work that they do. I, I help them as much as I can. If they, you know, if they ask me and I'm available, I go help them, you know, you know, camouflage the blind or, or do whatever works required. Um, mm-hmm. if, if I'm at all available, but they do most of the work. And then I'm just a side, I'm just a young, dumb sidekick, um, <laughs> that goes and hunts, you know, ducks and geese with them. And, and honestly, I'm still learning. It's my second season. So I'm excited about that. But, since we last podcasted, I uh, I made my first ever pilgrimage uh, to Montana, um, and uh, you know my intent um, is to kind of move away from the public land in Colorado, which I've hunted for uh, the last twelve years, 
and um, God love them out there in Colorado. They are loving their public lands to death. There are people everywhere, and um, it, it is what it is, and I'm happy for them, but I, I need more solitude. You know, I was... <laughs> I was working on I was working on publishing a, a, another article today, and and in part of that article, I talked about uh, what you and I have talked about. How, um, you know, you're a huge Daniel Boone fan, and I'm a huge Simon Kenton fan, and we have this running argument that one is the better frontiersman. But the funny part about those two guys is Simon Kenton liked to stay here in Kentucky, and he liked to help every settler that came down the Ohio River. Um, Daniel Boone finally got fed up with civilization and started moving west and moving west and moving west. And he ended up in in uh, Missouri because he enjoyed the solitude. And, I, and in the essay I was writing today, I said, you know, even though I think Simon Kenton is the superior frontiersman, I think I got a little <laughs> I, th- I think I've got a little Daniel Boone in me because I need more solitude uh, on public lands. And uh, I, I, yeah. am, I am moving out of Colorado in the. The, what what we call the backside of the front range that I've hunted for about 12 years, and I'm going to go hunt um, Montana, and I'm going to hunt um, just north of Yellowstone in the Unlimiteds for sheep. And so uh, I linked up That's with all. Awesome. Yeah, it's it was a little crazy. I was going to do it by myself, and it turns out you know this network that we have with backcountry hunters and anglers all across uh, the nation. A good friend of mine. Um, uh, Frank Lake, who is uh, a board officer in the Iowa chapter, it's on his bucket list to try the Unlimiteds as well. And he found out I was going to do that and got a hold of me. And then we were able to meet up, um, you know, just north of uh, Yellowstone. Uh, he he curtailed. I planned to do a week's uh, recon of those sheep units up there. And... Um, he was already on vacation, and he was able to uh, talk his lovely bride into meeting us, or meeting me, uh, up there. And um, on the very first day, we 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 were discussing, you know, going on a scouting trip, and we actually ran into a young wrangler who wrangles horses up in that unit. And he said, "Oh yeah, we see sheep up here," and he pointed on the map. And my God, Ben, Frank got excited, and and I said, Frank. It's our first day at altitude, man. <laughs> it's we're standing at sixty five hundred feet of elevation, and and the kids pointing at eighty four hundred feet of elevation. I said, I don't know that we need to try that, you know. Today, I said, let's go around look at some trailheads. Let's. He's like, but Mike, I don't. I've only really got today. Let me talk to my 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 new wife and see if we can stay an extra day. Long story short, it wasn't that he couldn't stay an extra day. I hadn't looked at the weather report for what would be the second day of scouting and a big snowstorm is coming in. So Frank Frank comes back and says, Mike, uh, big snowstorm coming in tomorrow morning. We basically have today, and then we could, you know, throw the four-wheel drive on and start just driving around checking out different trailheads tomorrow. Uh, so we basically got to go. And I'm like, you're kidding me. So first day at altitude um, – you know, we went with really light packs, just survival gear, wet weather gear, and a little bit of food and water. Um, and, of course, you know, big bore pistols and bear spray. And uh, we – it took us all day. We did just shy of 18 miles round trip to go from where we were camped up to this, um, you know – rocky escarpment 
set of mountainous peaks that that, that this young wrangler said he that they see you know sheep all summer mm-hmm. up there which is you know huge intel i mean you you couldn't pay oh, yeah. for that kind of intel and right. and we're like we're like uh five hours one way so you know we got there it took us just shy of five hours we tried to sit there for as long as we could but knowing we would be coming back in the dark um if we stayed any longer and we get to the first we get over the first ridge and we get to this big giant gorgeous meadow and we cut the first muddy trail and there's brand new fresh grizzly tracks on it and Mm. (laughs) i look at frank frank looks at me (laughs) and we're like are you kidding me man so you know for the rest of the for the for the rest of that hike and then all of our glassing up at the peaks and then for the hike home you know we're very bear aware right and uh we didn't run into mother grizz or or papa brown um and we did find some sheep evidence so that that week of scouting went really good that was the only day that i really got in a day of like 18 miles round trip the next day frank had to leave and a big snowstorm came in and and i went and checked out the trailheads all the way around all these mountains and and then all the way up through you know two big cities and back south to the other side of Yellowstone to check out two other trailheads. Long story short, we have a plan to hunt sheep next year now. And then when that was over, I met uh, Larry Richards, who's been a a guest on my other podcast and a a friend of ours here at BHA, and he's a member. I met him up near a town called Big Sandy, and we hunted mule deer for a week. And uh, to be blatantly honest and entirely humble, I am a mess when it comes to mule deer hunting um i've i've got record book animals in alaska africa united states i am a mess when it comes to hunting mule deer they've got my number i just (laughs) i get excited i get the flinches i get i fail to remember to do simple tasks and i've been hunting 39 years and they just they have me they've got me i get excited i shake whatever it is so I, I screwed up my two opportunities at Mule Deer Bucks, and um, late on the fourth day of a seven-day hunt, I capped a big Montana whitetail and was very happy. Um, went up uh, there and cut him up and packed, deboned him and packed him out by myself, which was mistake number seven. Um, <laughs> their, their whitetails are not Kentucky whitetails. They're they're a third larger, if not more. Yep. And, yeah. uh, and man, that sucker about broke me off. It was all I could do to hike the deboned meat and the skull and antlers back to the road. I didn't even try to get to my truck. As soon as I got to the road, I just grounded the pack and then hiked to my truck naked, basically just my rifle and me, no mm-hmm. pack and got the truck and drove it back to the pack. <laughs> it's like, I'm not carrying this thing any further. So. It was a yeah. really successful Montana hunt, and then um, uh, here in Kentucky, I've, uh, I've helped my um, my mentee of two years ago, Joel. I've uh, been helping him uh, uh, kind of get the training wheels off. He he helped me cut up a buck last weekend, so he's ready to go. And then I picked up a new mentee. Um, his name's Tuan, and Tuan and I have been um, um, you know working it out. Uh, the goal with Tuan is to just he really wants to kill a, a a deer with a compound bow, and uh, so you know, generally when I start mentoring people, I use a a, a crossbow. 
Uh, I don't use it, but I use the mentor people, and uh, he wants to do it with compound bow. So he'll be over tomorrow night, and um, we're going to continue to work on his accuracy. Uh, he was hitting the bull at 20 last time, which he was very excited because he previously was only able to kind of hit the bull inside 15 yards. And um, he's he's gifted archer, so, I mean, he's he's progressing much faster than anybody else. And uh, and then the last thing is uh, my lovely bride. She uh, She took a doe. With her bow, and then took a nice buck with her rifle. So everybody's doing good in the deer season, but me. I I have uh, completely have <laughs> completely botched two opportunities on mule deer, and uh, and and although I did get a really nice buck in Montana, I have yet to have uh, an opportunity on a buck here in Kentucky. So oh, there's still plenty of time left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've already been out with my bow a couple times after uh, rifle season. It's pretty slow. I think we. Had a lot of people out with rifles, you know. We've had increased hunter participation due to COVID, and and mm-hmm. uh, I think if they didn't get shot, our whitetails at least got beat up pretty good um, yeah. with, with hunter pressure. So that's what I've been up to. Um, you know, it's funny because we used to do these podcasts, or at least when we started doing these podcasts, there were eight commission meetings a year. Now there's only four. And so um, – these podcasts are longer and more involved, and there's a lot more to catch up on when we finally do them. But, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's where we're at. So uh, are you ready to cover national issues, brother? I am ready to go. Well, and, uh, like I told you before we started, I'm just going to hit four, uh, four things real quick, three of which we've covered uh, previously, so I won't go into great detail. But I'll, we've got two bad, two good, so... I'll go with the two bad first and finish on uh, finish on a good note. Go for it. Uh, first up, uh, we'll talk about what's going on in the Tongass National Forest up in Alaska, which we I covered it in the very first episode of this, I believe, which is a year ago. So we've been at this a year now. Nice. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the Trump administration has lifted the roadless rule there, meaning they can start, you know, logging and making roads into what was once the largest untouched temperate rainforest. So that has, the roadless rule has been lifted there and logging development soon to follow. Uh, The second thing is an update on the great American outdoors act, which was passed a couple months ago. And uh, it was a secretarial secretarial order from uh, the Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, and he put in uh, put some new rules into place with it, like uh, eliminating outright funds for land acquisition, and also allowing state and local officials to veto land acquisitions even with the willing seller. Which I'm not sure how you do that, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, number number three, we will go with. Uh, we'll, what was once House Bill 2435 with the Accelerating the Veterans Recovery Outdoors Act. And what this is going to do is going to require the Department of Veteran Affairs to create a task force on outdoor recreation for veterans, which will go for uh, medical treatment and therapy for them. So putting uh, putting public lands to really good use. So, And lastly, we'll go with uh, Pelmont up in uh, Bristol Bay in Alaska. That permit has been denied. So that area up in in Alaska is safe for the time being. So those are just four real quick things. I know you got a lot to talk about, so 
Unless yeah. Discussion on those, we can switch it over to you. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate um, what you're bringing up there. You know, the the uh, the veterans deal there, you know, I'm really proud of um, the new veterans program that we have at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And, uh, you know, recovering from trauma, whether you be a first responder, you know, PTSD actually started not in the military, but it started with, you know, police and fire. And first responders, law enforcement officers, uh, fire, um, firemen, you know, you see a lot of nasty stuff, whether you're a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, um, law enforcement officer, or you're in the fire service. And and it's amazing uh, to me the therapeutic and regenerative nature of the outdoors. And, and I'm really, I'm really excited about um, the recovering uh, veterans initiative and in the outdoors there. Um, oh, yeah. The, the other thing is, is, you know, we don't get into editorializing. We don't get into politics in this podcast whatsoever, but you have to think, you have to think if the election would have gone the other way, would Pebble Mine have been permitted? You have to think that. Would it have right. been, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm not saying you have to come to a conclusion, but you have to think, would it or would it have not been permitted? Would we have permitted the largest gold and heavy metals mine in the last probably 40 years to, to maybe 60 years in the middle of the most, you know, lucrative and lush and ripe salmon fishery uh, probably in all of Alaska and British Columbia. So it's just some, some interesting things to think about. And, you know, um, uh, I forget who says it, but I, I think I've heard Hal Herring say it on uh, BHA's podcast and Blast. You might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And uh, so, you know, it obviously impacted this this presidential election, obviously impacted Pebble Mine being permanent. Uh, so whatever you think, um, it's just something else to ponder there. Uh, it's Although it's been a crazy year, it's been a good year for outdoor legislation. We've done well. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah it really has been. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's been some bad, but, I mean, there's been also been a lot of good that come along with it. Yep. Yep. We, you know, looking back, we've done pretty well on outdoor legislation and funding. Um, you know, with the Great American Outdoors Act actually permanently funding um, LWCF, man, that's that's mm-hmm. huge, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, been a good year at the federal level. Um, you know, I'm not going to characterize what kind of year it's been at the state level, um, but I'm going to jump right into where we're at right now uh, in the state issues in the Commonwealth. Okay, so to answer everyone's question uh, right up front, which if you're a listener to this podcast, the first thing you probably want to know is where are we at with the lawsuit between the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the governor? Um, If you remember from last podcast and from the September and even earlier uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission meetings, there were special call meetings in August, um, the Fish and Wildlife Commission voted unanimously to give the chairman of the Fish and Wildlife Commission the authority to file suit against the administration of uh, Governor Bashir 
with regard to the contract of our former, and, and I would, some people say he's still the current, but he has no contract. His contract expired this summer. So the former commissioner of the Department of Fish and Wildlife, Mr. Storm. Um, and so that lawsuit was filed um, and on October 28th in Franklin, Court, in, uh, Franklin County Court. Uh, Judge Wingate dismissed the lawsuit. Um, he dismissed the entire case, um, although he did agree with the fact that uh, the law in the 150 series is the law. He dismissed every other aspect of the case. And since the Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, voted um, to take that uh, complaint or that lawsuit all the way up to the Kentucky Supreme Court, they then took uh, Judge Wingate's dismissal of their lawsuit uh, and filed it in the appellate court. And right now it is with the appellate court. So for anybody that wants to know where it's at, it's at the appellate court. Our Fish and Wildlife Commission filed it, and it is in that process right now. Um, moving on to some good news. Uh, the League of Kentucky Sportsmen recently spent some of their um, money that they earned through license plate revenue. You know, you see that eight-point buck on an LKS license plate, and part of that... License plate purchase uh, goes to the League of Kentucky Sportsmen. They recently spent a significant amount of their license plate money to buy uh, what are called plot masters, which are uh, food plot uh, all-in-one implements. They basically do uh, everything that uh, farmers do with, you know, a disc uh, and a, uh, a drill and a cultipacker kind of a deal. It's kind of an all-in-one device, and it is used to put in food plots for uh, wildlife. And uh, Lee Kentucky Sportsman recently spent uh, tens of thousands of dollars on multiple plot masters and donated them to the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources. And it is my understanding that those will not only be used by uh, department personnel, but that uh, they could be signed out um, from the department's um, private lands biology program. Uh, even more good news, uh, four members... Uh, one, two, three, four members of the Fern Creek Sportsman's Club, uh, Mr. Roger LaPointe, Mr. Scott Croom, Mr. Jason Scannell, and Mr. Glenn Hall. We're all honored with the Serve to Conserve Awards for their work to help the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife over the last few years with their Field of Fork events. Um, if you're not familiar with Fern Creek Sportsman's Club, um, they have done a significant amount of work and have held a significant number of classes, uh, both with the turkey field to fork and the deer field to fork. And those four gentlemen were honored by the department at this meeting. Uh, meet, uh, the minutes, excuse me, from the last quarterly meeting were approved uh, with one small typo correction. So the September minutes were approved. And... Um, I'm bringing this up because uh, most of the sportsmen and women in the state rarely pay attention to the details of um, these quarterly commission meetings. And, and that's the reason um, I started uh, going to these meetings and taking notes and then uh, typing up all the notes and sending it to, you know, first about a dozen sportsmen, then about three dozen sportsmen. And now I have a podcast um, that I really couldn't do without your help, Ben. So thank you. But Honestly, there's a lot of people that don't have the time and the energy to go to these meetings, especially since the meetings are on Monday or Friday during the work week. So uh, one of the other things that I don't think sportsmen and women have the time to pay attention to is to go back through the minutes from the last quarterly meeting and make sure that everything was on the up and up and that anything of interest was uh, brought to their attention. So one of the things that I think sportsmen and women should pay attention to 
is that our Fish and Wildlife Commission went into executive session at the end of last quarter's meeting. And when they came out of executive session, um, they voted on uh, the um, potential to acquire seven new land properties. Now, there's no way to know which piece of land it is, how big it is, or where it is, because that is kept secret or the state could be in competition with a private entity and the price could go up and up and up. So it makes perfect sense. A lot of people think that it's a bad thing that our Fish and Wildlife Commission goes in an executive session and talks about these land acquisitions quietly behind closed doors and then comes out and votes on them. And they vote on them in such a manner as it's parcel A, parcel B, parcel C, parcel D, parcel E. They're not named. Well, the reason they're not named, ladies and gentlemen, is because we don't want competition for the limited amount of money that our Fish and Wildlife Commission has to acquire land for the use of our sportsmen and women. So they go into executive session and they do the good work they need to do quietly back there in executive session. And they came out um, from last uh, quarterly meeting and they voted on seven potential properties and they voted to move forward on all seven. So your Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, voted uh, to move forward to acquire seven new properties. What those are, I cannot tell you. Where they are, I cannot tell you. How big they are, I cannot tell you. And that is right, and that is just, and that is proper. We will only know when the deal is done because any competition prior to the deal being done could jack the price up, and we might lose our opportunity. Excuse me. The Fish and Wildlife Commission might lose their opportunity to acquire those properties. During that discussion, two commissioners commented publicly that they are actually more concerned with the upkeep of the public lands we have and the wildlife management areas, the WMAs we have, uh, more than acquiring new property. And that was a discussion that was had amongst the nine commissioners. And so two of your uh, district commissioners are probably representing you well if you've complained that you would rather your WMA was maintained better than buying new ones. So just so everyone knows, that was the end of last quarter's meeting. And then going into this quarter's meeting, uh, the first two things that happened were that the quarterly financials were approved. Um, and I can tell everybody that uh, the new working groups are starting to meet and the budget working group met. And, and uh, so the quarterly financials were approved and the 2021 budget was approved. And uh, there was a public note made that uh, the 2022 budget would very soon um, be going to the six division chiefs within the Department of Fish and Wildlife for them to work on their 2022 budget. So, you know, the fisheries director, the wildlife director, all of the six different division directors in the Department of Fish and Wildlife would be working on their 2022 budget here uh, very soon. Okay, so let's uh, let's move into action items. Um, the first action item uh, that the uh, commission considered was uh, Regulation 301 KAR 2 semicolon 2 excuse me colon 2 2 6, uh, and the proposed time frame was the fall season of 2021, where we would um, enjoy a Veterans Waterfowl Day. 
Uh, and basically the way this would work is uh, the Wildlife Division recommended replacing the special youth waterfowl weekends scheduled separately for the east and west zones with a statewide youth and veterans and active duty military waterfowl weekend in which youth hunters could hunt on Saturdays and veterans could hunt on Sundays. <coughs> uh, excuse me. So the way this would work is um, based on uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, uh, which was mo modified to allow two days of veteran hunts, uh, states may select two days per duck hunting zone designated as youth waterfowl days and two days per duck hunting zone designated veteran and active duty military waterfowl hunting days. And this will be in addition to the regular waterfowl hunting season. And so basically, since we eliminated um, our zones, east and west, and, and basically are managing waterfowl in a statewide fashion at this point, um, what we're going to have is we're going to have two weekends, um, and it will be the Saturday before Thanksgiving and the second February or the second weekend in February. Okay, so the Saturday before Thanksgiving and the second weekend in February would be youth and veterans waterfowl hunting weekends. And so the Saturday would be for youth and the Sunday would be for veterans. There was a lot of discussion and some disagreement amongst the commissioners about how to do this, how to implement it, how to approve it, how to make it work. Could we do it where... Uh, youth got four days and veterans got four days instead of youth get two days and veterans got two days. The, look, the bottom line is this. The law allows two days for youth and two days for veterans. Um, if we still had an east and west zone, you could have two days for youth in the east, two days for youth in the west, two days for veterans in the east, two days for veterans west. So technically, if you were willing to travel, you could get four extra days. But that is not applicable when we have statewide management and we got rid of the zones for a very good reason. So right now we have statewide management and it's going to be the Saturday before Thanksgiving and the second weekend in February where we have youth and veteran waterfowl weekends, Saturdays for the youth, Sundays for the veterans. And one of the benefits that was very um, um, accurately uh, explained by John Brungis, who runs our, our waterfowl program, was that by splitting these weekends and splitting the days, you also mitigate the risk. You mitigate the risk because if you had them back-to-back -back and a really bad front came through or you had them back-to-back -back and, you know, there was some kind of, you know, social issue like we have going on now with COVID, you know, it could, you know, obliterate the whole weekend by having it, you know, in November and February, um, you, you kind of spread it out and you give the opportunity where, you know, maybe if we're lucky, uh, it's beautiful weather both weekends and nobody cares. But um, uh, if they were back to back or we have four days in a row and, and there was flooding or, you know, some kind of crazy snow squall, uh, it, it could pretty much eliminate uh, the opportunity. So, uh there was a lot of discussion. It was one of the more heated uh, issues that went on uh, during this commission meeting, and, and it was one of the very first issues that was discussed. And to be blatantly honest, Ben, uh, I've been attending these meetings. This is the 26th meeting uh, that I've made in the last number of years, and it is the first split vote 
that I've seen that was a sincere split vote. Uh, it actually passed. So we will uh, be implementing for the 2021 fall season. Uh, it's got to make it through everything we do. I, I want to make a quick caveat so listeners understand. Everything that your Fish and Wildlife Commission does must be approved by the legislature. So just because it comes out of this meeting and it gets approved as an action item does not mean it's going to be 100% whole cloth approved by the legislature. So I'm going to say that as a disclaimer. But coming out of this meeting, it was approved by your Fish and Wildlife Commission, and the vote was 5-3 to three approved that we would have uh, two youth and veteran waterfowl weekends. All right, moving on. Um, we're now moving to um, action item, uh, which was based on Regulation 301 kar 2 251, which would uh, be effective in the 2021 20, hunting season, and it was to amend KAR three or excuse me, amend 301 KAR 2251 to require mandatory jaw jaw section or tooth submission on all bobcats harvested, trapping or hunting, uh, and to require the telecheck of all bobcats and otters under KRS. 150.170 damage criteria because right now they are required to be telechecked if they're hunted or trapped, but they're not required to be telechecked if they were taken under damage criteria. And so the bottom line here is that uh, we have a significant population increase um, of bobcats uh, across basically the eastern half of the state. If you're hunting in the bluegrass region like we are, the chances that you're going to see a bobcat. Uh, the chances that you're going to call a bobcat in uh, when you're coyote hunting it is slim to none and slim left town. I was talking to two very experienced sportsmen uh, today, and I think between the three of us, we've seen four bobcats while we were hunting um, in our entire lives in the bluegrass region. If you're hunting in the Appalachian region, that's a completely different scenario. Uh, there's a significant number of cats out there. And the hunters uh, are requesting uh, increased opportunity and increased hunting um, uh, of bobcats. Um, and so the bottom line is, is the biologists um, cannot say with certainty that we have a big enough bobcat population that, you know, the observations of, of biologists and hunters is not enough. And so the biologists would like more data. And to get that data, they need more, um, basically the canine teeth is what they need. They need canine teeth. The problem with getting a canine tooth out of a cat is there's more of the tooth in the jaw than there is that you can see sticking out. So to get that tooth out, you need to slow boil it. And you need to really, really take your time. And then once that jaw bone is really mushy, you can get that tooth out. And then that tooth has to be sent away to a lab, and they do a very fine cross-section, and they basically count the rings uh, like you would on a tree when you cut a tree down. And that helps them know the age of the cat, and then they can get the age stratification of the population. Basically, if you have too many young cats, that tells the biologist one thing. If you have too many old cats, that tells the biologist something else. If you have some young cats, some middle-aged cats, and some old cats, that tells them you know that there's probably a healthy population running around there. So... You know, anecdotally, 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 
we know that um, there's more cats on the landscape. We're seeing them. Um, you know, hunters and trappers are taking about 2,100 to 2,200 cats a year. But where we're at now is with this particular action item is that in order to um, increase the hunting season, the biologists um, would like mandatory tooth or jaw section submitted from all bobcats harvested for trapping and hunting via a mail-in program. And uh, they would like all uh, bobcats, uh, including those under the damage criteria, um, to be telechecked. And so the wildlife division recommended that the amendments uh, above uh, be put into bobcat collection for population monitoring and to aid in uh, formulating hunting season recommendations in the future. And there was a lot of discussion. Um, multiple commissioners talked to their constituents in their district and their constituents who were hunters generally said, look, we don't want to give you a section of the jaw of our bobcat because it ruins the trophy. If I have to cut out the front part of the jaw or just one corner of the jaw to get you you know, a canine tooth with the jaw uh, attached, it, it completely ruins the Euro mount or the skull mount. And, uh, of course, then the trappers came and said, well, we don't want in increased hunting opportunity because that might impact our take. And then the biologists came and said, well, we need more canine teeth. So you have this situation where there's three, you know, uh, stakeholders. The trappers don't want increased hunting. The Hunters do want to increase hunting, but don't want to give up the skulls of the jaw. And the biologists absolutely positively have to have a canine tooth that's not been destroyed in removal, or they have to have a canine tooth that's still embedded in jaw bone um, to get the data they need to make an accurate biological recommendation. So we're basically at an impasse. And it, the discussion went on for quite some time. Uh, finally, uh, motion was made and a second, and then it was voted to table the discussion on um, basically increasing the bobcat season and or uh, requiring making it mandatory for submission of jaw or jawbone section, jawbone section um, to the biologist. So this was tabled and will be looked at again in March. The next issue was exactly, almost exactly the same issue. Um, it was, again, an action item. Uh, it is based on Regulation uh, 301 KAR 226, and if it was passed, it would take effect in the fall season of 2021, and it was basically the Wildlife Division um, um, would promulgate, excuse me, I, sa I said the wrong KAR number. It's KAR 3-022, and basically the Wildlife Division was recommending that uh, we promulgate a $5 bobcat hunting permit. And the reason for this, uh, for the 2021 20, season, was also based on getting accurate uh, biological data in the context that um, we don't know exactly um, how many hunters are hunting bobcats. Uh, so, you know, if, uh, just to make the math very easy, if... Uh, we had a thousand people buying bobcat permits and they uh, hunters. If we had a thousand hunters buying bobcat permits and 500 of them were successful, then we'd have 50% success rate and that would tell the biologist something. But right now, um, what we don't have is um, we don't have a way for the biologist to know exactly how many hunters are hunting bobcats. Um, 
you know, so the commission uh, initiated a discussion of changing the bobcat hunting season uh, opening to be concurrent with the modern gun deer season opening day. And although the wildlife division recognized that there's an abundance of bobcats in the in many areas of eastern Kentucky, um, and the wildlife division does want to increase the opportunity to target bobcats, a successful monitoring program is not in place right now. And so how many, you know, are harvested versus how many bobcat tags are sold since the bobcat tag is not actually separate tag. It's it's included in another, you know, the fur bear tag. Uh, the wives division recommended requiring a bobcat hunting permit of $5. And in the discussion, they said, look, it can be a dollar. It can be $2. It doesn't matter. We just need a separate tag so that we know how many hunters are hunting them. And then we know how many, because they have to tel telecheck them, we know how many um, were successful. That gives us a percentage or a success rate. And then that helps inform our biological decisions. And so this also was extremely um, contentious. There was discussion up and down and left and right. And uh, Miss Palmer, the bobcat biologist, um, did a great job explaining some things and uh, there was some really, really good discussion uh, from the Eastern Kentucky commissioners, especially Mr. Paul Horn, about the fact that um, observationally the hunters in his district and the other Eastern Kentucky districts are seeing less small game and more bobcats on the landscape. And we really, really need to increase uh, the hunting opportunity here. But, you know, the biologists were basically saying, look, we don't have the data, so we cannot make a scientific recommendation. So once again, this, this became uh, a much uh, debated and contentious issue, and uh, then there was a motion, a second, and, and the motion was to table it so that we could get another 90 days of discussion, and uh, the motion to table it passed. Okay, so the next one was uh, something that was discussed at length over months and months and months. Um, if, if our listeners remember, there was actually a... Um, a bill request in last year's legislative session to um, promulgate a law uh, for wanton waste. And that did not pass. For whatever reason, that did not make it through the legislature. Now uh, we have an action item before the commission um, to promulgate a wanton waste regulation. So for folks that don't necessarily grasp how this works, uh, the 150 series of Kentucky Revised Statute is law. And that 150 series or that 150 chapter governs fish and wildlife in the state of Kentucky. If we don't have a law, what, we, what the Fish and Wildlife Commission can do is they can promulgate or they can propose and implement a regulation subordinate to the law. So the law gives them the authority to do that. And so for most folks, you wouldn't really think about it because it just happens and you read it in the hunting guide or the trapping guide or, or the fishing guide. You know, those um, methods of take and bag limits and all those things, those actually come out of a Kentucky Administrative Regulation, uh, and a KAR that is subordinate to a 150 series law in, um, uh, in Kentucky law. So, what, we're, what the commission is trying to do here is they're trying to promulgate or make and implement a wanton waste regulation, um, and that would um, basically uh, make specific to deer, elk, bear, and game birds a law, excuse me, an admin regulation, excuse me, 
uh, made specific to deer, elk, bear, and game birds and administrative regulation, which would require reasonable effort to retrieve all game species taken. So you can't just shoot it and say, oh, I missed and not go look. All right. So it would require reasonable effort to retrieve all game species taken. It would require the removal from the field of four quarters, inner and outer loins for deer, bear, and elk, and breast meat for game birds. Deboned meat would be compliant, so you would not have to take it out with the bones in it. So deboned meat would be compliant, and it would clearly define dumping of a carcass as littering, which is already punishable under other law, and it would exempt from the law's requirements animals otherwise lawfully taken either in the act of causing crop or property damage or via roadkill. So basically what we're doing is there's 32 other states in the United States. So 32 of our 50 states already have a wanton waste law. Kentucky is basically catching up to those 32 other states and requiring that hunters who shoot a deer, elk, or bear take out the four quarters, the back straps, the loins. Um, and if you shoot a game bird, that you take out at least the breast meat. That's it. That's all this law says. Uh, or excuse me, that's all this administrative regulation says or would say. Uh, there was a significant amount of discussion about uh, enforcement of this, and um, really, honestly, um, the the most salient point came from uh, Commissioner Fisher, Commissioner Fisher, uh, who talked about the responsibility as hunters to be stewards of the resource, and we as hunters should be stewards of the resource, and we as hunters should, if at all possible, take out even more. Than the four quarters, the loins, uh, the back straps, and the uh, of deer, elk, and bear, and the breasts of game birds. Um, and uh, a discussion uh, also ensued on uh, crop damage permits and such, and and that really is actually the next agenda item. But the bottom line is is that um, a wanton waste regulation is something Kentucky um, has been uh, behind the times with. I'm not gonna editorialize but there's 32 other states that already have one so we're behind the power curve and our commission is trying to get one passed that is reasonable and uh, uh, a motion was made uh, seconded and uh, this action item passed and so for the 2021 hunting season we may very well see a wanton waste regulation okay so moving on um uh, this is an interesting one. Um, so, um, uh, under this is another action item under Kentucky uh, under KRS three hundred one, Kentucky Admin Regulation two hundred eight three. Um, the commission needed to uh, amend our uh, our um, Kentucky Revised Statute three hundred one, Kentucky Admin Regulation two hundred eight three, to accurately reference the Kentucky Department of Agriculture's captive servant update because they just updated um, their um, l their Kentucky Ride statute and their admin regulation and this is effective uh, in the fall of 201 uh, or excuse me of 2021 so basically this had this action item number A8 on the commission's agenda had nothing to do with uh, anything that the Fish and Wildlife Commission or the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources is doing it was just for uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources to amend our regulation to get in compliance with the Department, the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. And the De Kentucky Department of Agriculture recently uh, repealed 
Um, Kentucky Revised Statute 302, Kentucky Admin Regulation 22066, and amended Kentucky Revised Statute 302, Kentucky Admin Regulation 22150, to require radio identification devices um, on all eligible animals over 12 months of age in captive cervid facilities. And um, November 30th is the annual renewable submission date for the uh, licenses of captive cervid. Now, cervid is deer or elk, folks. So we have multiple hundreds of deer and elk captive cervid facilities in the state, mostly deer in the state of Kentucky. So November 30th is the annual annual renewable submission date um, for those facilities and um, the agricultural uh um, the Secretary of Agriculture and that cabinet updated um, those dates and those payments. It also updated the annual inventory inspection, which must be performed uh, between January 1st and April 30th, and said that captive herds not inventoried by May will be placed under quarantine with restrictions. So anything that doesn't get inventory between January 1st and April 30th will, um, if it's not reported as inventory by May, will be quarantined. It also updated uh, the quarterly inspection records requirement, uh, meaning that herd must the herds, the captive servant herds must be inventory inventoried and the record of inspection and reviewed uh, quarterly at a minimum by a representative of the office of the state's veterinarian. So I'll say that again. Um, herd inventory record inspections and reviews will be conducted quarterly at a minimum by a representative of the office of state veterinarian. It also changed the reporting requirements for herd certification. Uh, the owner of uh, any captive server facility um, must report any captive server that escapes, disappears, or dies, including any captive server that was killed, harvested, or slaughtered. If no captive servant has escaped, disappeared or died in a single month, the owner must report no change to the Office of State Veterinarian by close of business on the first of each month. Any escaped or disappeared cervids from a captive cervid herd must be reported within 48 hours, and cervids taken by harvest or that die from illness or any other reason reported within seven days. Finally, sample collection and submission within seven days for herd certification program continuance. So any herd that is 12 months or older that, excuse me, any cervid that is 12 months or older that dies for any reason, including harvest, must be tested for chronic wasting disease. The owner is responsible for the chronic wasting disease sample collection, submission, and testing. Samples shall be submitted to an approved laboratory within seven days of collection. And Ben, if that wasn't hard enough to say out loud, my God. <laughs> yeah, that was a mouthful. Jeez, oh Pete. I, I, I take all these notes at these meetings and I highlight portions of the of the department's agenda and, and I think that whoever put this together puts this together for the department and the commission does a great job. But my God, it's a lot to go over and, and, and the meeting the department's meeting in September took almost eight hours. This one was just over six hours, and, you know, it's once a quarter, and my, whew, it's a lot. It's a mouthful. Okay, yeah, try, so. Trying try to condense that all, I mean, that's, 
you got a tough job on your hands. <laughs> well, you know, this all started with friends of mine who, you know, like I said, I went to that. I went to those first two or three meetings and, and took notes and started sending them out, and they were all like, "Man, I, I, uh, I work a full time job, you know, fifty, sixty hours a week, and I got kids. I can't go to these meetings, but I really want to know what's going on." Yeah, and that's morphed into this podcast. So my goodness, it's uh, uh and and for anybody that's listening, we do this for free. No, nobody sponsors Ben and I. We don't make a nickel off this daggone podcast. In fact, I spent almost $1,000 on audio re- recording equipment, and Ben has spent God knows how many hours trying to learn how to be a uh, what what the uh, guys at uh, Clear Channel Radio call a producer. It's basically someone that can, you know, help get a um, – what what this is really a digital talk radio program, but basically get this from a raw format into something that can be, um, you know, edited and made into a clear, concise uh, ev- uh, program with an intro and an ex and an exfiltration and and, and posted on the internet. You know, Ben's taught himself to do that, and we don't make a nickel. So this is all really to help everybody we love, our friends and and, and our fellow sportsmen and women out in the Commonwealth. So with a big deep breath. And hold on a second, a, a little sip of libation. I need to. It's Kentucky, right? I can I can take a break real quick. Hold on a second. Go for it. Ah, so that was the wildlife. That was the end of the wildlife division's action items. Um, friends, the wildlife division is always the most contentious. It is always the hardest thing to get through when you're talking about, you know, from our largest most charismatic megafauna the elk all the way down to squirrels you know every hunting opportunity i'm telling you right now your department biologists your department officials and your district commissioners they agonize over it they listen to their sportsmen and women in their in their districts or they don't sometimes they don't it doesn't matter they agonize over it they work their butts off um, to do what they think is right, either as a as a commissioner or as a biologist or as a department official, and it's really really tough um, to get through uh, the wildlife division's report uh, every quarter. And uh, congratulations to Chris Garland, the division uh, chief, because uh, it's really the yoke that he wears to uh, you know pull us through and and get the answers that are required. So moving on to uh, to fisheries, um, uh, I was uh, dismayed to hear that uh, uh, Paul Wilkes, the acting fisheries director, uh, had departed. Um, uh, hadn't heard that. Uh, so you know, uh, fare thee well, Paul. Uh, wherever you wherever you've gone, my friend, fare thee well. Uh, but we are our fisheries division is now in the hands of uh, Dave Dreves. Uh, and if anybody knows Dave, uh, he's he's squared away. Uh, I don't know him as well as I knew Paul, but I really don't feel like we're in bad hands here. I feel like Dave's going to do a great job for us. Uh, so just uh, additional information for everybody that listens to the podcast. Uh, Paul uh, Wilkes has departed um, and Dave Dreves has taken the uh, mantle. And is at the helm of fisheries. Um, so what uh, we the uh, first fisheries action item was uh, uh, reference uh, admin, or excuse me, three hundred one K A R one two O one, and it was to add uh, 
Robert J. Barth Lake in Campbell County to the FINS program and to add it with standard creel and length limits. And basically the city of Cold Springs in Campbell County approached the department a couple years ago and asked that their small lake, it's it's just under four acres, uh, be included in the fishing in neighborhoods or the fence program. And uh, there is absolutely no reason not to do that. It's a great idea to do that. We have uh, 44 lakes currently in the program, in the fence program. Um, this easily passed uh, your commission, so Robert J. Barth um, has passed the commission. Uh, it still has to go through the legislature. Remember that, folks. Um, the next action item uh, was uh, 301-KAR-1201, and it was to enact a 20-inch minimum size limit and a one-fish daily creel limit on largemouth bass at High Splint Lake. Uh, and this will be effective uh, next summer. And uh, for everybody that remembers, um, there was a, a new record fish um, caught, a new record largemouth bass caught at High Splint Lake. And ever since that record <laughs> was caught, and it's, that lake is receiving an exceptional amount of new pressure, uh, which everyone on who could listen to this podcast would understand would happen. Um, so uh, enacting the 20-inch 20 20 minimum size limit and one fish daily creel limit on largemouth bass at High Splint Lake passed. Okay, so the next action item also in fisheries uh, has to do with uh, Regulation 301-KAR-1201 and would be effective in fall of 2021 and it would be to enact a catch and release only at Clear Fork Tributary of the Gasper River. So for folks that are not from that area and don't know what's going on, the Clear Fork of the Gasper River um, had a fish kill. And the fish kill really uh, impacted the, the aquatic ecology of that um, body of water. And so what your commission is trying to do is they're trying to um, uh, prevent any impact by sportsmen of the recovery of that body of water. So their action item was to make catch and release only on Clear Fork tributary of the Gasper River. And that passed and it should take effect in fall of 2021. Okay, so the next action item was actually an interesting one. Um, it's really not something that the, our commission has the power to regulate, but um, it would be effective next year, and it was to determine whether to allow the sale of alcohol by the drink, so alcohol by the drink, in the Gist Creek Lake Marina restaurant. So there's a few marinas that are... Um, basically under the purview of the Department of Fish and Wildlife or the Fish and Wildlife Commission, and the Gist Creek Marina is one of those venues. It's one of those entities. And um, the folks that um, are under under contract as owners of that uh, marina want to rehabilitate it, put in a new restaurant, and then they want to allow the vendor to operate a more upscale grill-style restaurant that serves alcohol by the drink. And our commission wanted to make sure that, um, you know, they were not going to be liable for anything that went wrong. And they wanted to make sure that it was done exactly right and on the up and up. And they involved, um, you know, members of the Chamber of Commerce, members of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, all that, all the people that needed to be involved. And um, there was public comment and, and, you know, it all went through the right uh, channels. And what I can tell everybody is that uh, your commission... Uh, made a motion and it was seconded and the commissioners voted and passed to allow 
um, the uh, Shelby County Industrial Development Foundation, et cetera, all those folks at the, in, in, who were involved in, in the contract at Gist Creek Marina to move forward with updating uh, the marina to have a grill-style restaurant that serves alcohol by the drink. And, of course, that'll all be subject to, you know, all of the alcohol board stuff and, and things that are way outside the purview of uh, Fish and Wildlife. Still, it was just basically clearing the bar at Fish and Wildlife to get into all the other red tape required to have a buy-the-drink grill kind of uh, bar and restaurant. So there you go. Um, the next action item um, really had no admin regulation or Kentucky Revised Statute or law associated with it. It was to pass a resolution to support the legislature in their amendment of Kentucky Revised Statute 235-285 to expand boater education certification requirement to include all motorized vessels, uh, operators born after July 1st, 1975, and create a temporary 14-day boater education exemption certification contingent on successful review of basic educational material and completion of a basic boating and safety laws test. So what we've got here is we've got an issue in the last five years where we have an excessive number of drownings in the state, um, an increased number of boating accidents, especially personal watercraft, including paddlecraft, kayaks and canoes. And our commission and your commissioners are concerned with the safety of everyone associated. And it has risen to the level of the legislature and the legislators are looking to amend the law. And so basically, our commissioners wanted to pass a resolution to tell the legislators that they support a more restrictive and a more involved and detailed law that requires better boater education. And it also would create a temporary boater education exemption so that someone could get the temporary exemption while they finished their, you know, full certification so that no one would be, like, completely pulled off the water before they got their license. But it's going to be more restrictive. And it's based on the number of deaths on public waters, and they continue to climb. And, you know, the department's been approached by victims of families involved in waterway deaths, and they're, and those families are requesting expanded boater safety education and personal flotation device usage and all of the other things you would think that would be smart to make sure that less people died on the water. So that takes us, Ben, to the end of the action items. And I feel like I need to do push-ups or something because I'm exhausted. <laughs> a lot more, uh, a lot more fishery stuff uh, this time around. I feel like. Yeah, you know, the normal. Right. I mean, the the cool part that the cool part about the wildlife that went by very quickly was that the Department of Agriculture put in some more restrictive limits on captive service farms, which. We were all kind of up in arms about uh, about six months ago, so I was really excited yeah. to hear that Department of Agriculture, you know, is going to be more restrictive. And, and, and honestly, if you're running a really clean, really well-fenced, and, and you have your records intact and your inventories intact, you can run a captive servant farm. You can run a deer farm in Kentucky, and I'm not going to get into how I feel about the ethics of that. But if you're doing it right and you're doing it well and the people that um, 
that kind of govern that or self-police that is Kayla, the Kentucky Alternative Livestock Association. If if they are doing a good job and their members are doing a good job, you can run a clean operation in Kentucky. It's no problem. It's the people that are doing the really small fly-by-the-seat-of-their-pants operations that are going to ruin it for everybody. Yep. And so, so that was pretty cool to learn that Department of Agriculture is is getting a little bit more restrictive for that. So that was, that was pretty neat. Um, so for everybody um, to catch up, again, some of y'all probably don't get it, probably don't spend as much time with it as me and Ben, and that's why we do this podcast, is um, – so the new commission format is we don't have eight meetings a year. We used to have a committee meeting and then a commission meeting and then a month off. And then a committee meeting and a commission meeting and a month off. So you'd have eight months of meetings and four months off. Now we have just four commission meetings that are official meetings. And then there's separate working group meetings. There's a budget working group, a wildlife management working group. I'm on the elk working group. Um, and, and we, you know, we try to inform the as best we can based on the issues that are brought to us in whatever working group, um, the full commission meeting every quarter. But the full commission meeting every quarter basically has three levels of things they consider. So everything starts as new business. And it gets discussed as new business. And if the nine commissioners or the majority of the nine commissioners think that that item as new business needs to move up, then the following quarter, three months later, it becomes a discussion item. And then between it being a new business and a discussion item, the paid staff at the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources work on it, mature it, make it more detailed, and then it becomes a discussion item. And then as it becomes a discussion item, the commissioners get more involved, all nine of them. And they work on the discussion item and they decide whether or not it needs to be an actual action item that they should change something either in admin regs or even if it needs to rise to the level of a change in statute. Um, And then a discussion item could 90 days later become an action item. So if something was a new business item that we discussed uh, this past week, I keep saying we as if I'm on the commission. If something was a new business item that was discussed last week um, by your commissioners, it could only become a discussion item in March. If something was a discussion item last week, it can become an action item in March. So if something was a new business item, it can become a discussion item in March and then it could become an action item in June. So there has to be six months between it being news, new business and being voted on. So now we are done with the action items and we are moving on to the discussion items. And the first discussion item was a multiple pronged and extremely detailed discussion item about um, waterfowl areas and waterfowl hunting position, uh, excuse me, provisions for Ballard, Boatwright, South Shore, and Slew's WMAs. And the Wildlife Division was recommending enhanced opportunities uh, at those four locations. And, ladies and gentlemen, it was extremely detailed. It was two and a half pages long. And there is no way on this podcast, we could do a whole hour-long podcast just on this discussion item. What I can tell you is that the discussion item was that uh, 301 KAR 2222 would be amended for next fall 
to enhance opportunities at Ballard, Boatwright, South Shore, and Slews WMAs for waterfowl hunting. And it was, you know, interesting things all through this agenda item. I encourage you to pull up this agenda item on the Department of Fish and Wildlife's uh, website or email Ben and I, and I will help you find it. But this was attachment D1 or discussion item one. Um, and again, it was to uh, enhance opportunities at those four WMAs for waterfowl hunting. And it passed, so this discussion item will be an action item um, in March. Uh, so um, the next one um, was, let's see here, was uh, uh, discussion item D2, or the second discussion item, was uh, also about, our, um, about uh, waterfowl. And it was reference 301KAR4020, and it would be effective in fall of 2021. And it was to repeal 301 Kentucky Admin Regulation 4020 and move relevant portions of 301KAR2222. Basically, folks, there is a lot of our admin regulations in the 150 series of Kentucky Revised Statute that are duplicative or duplic or uh, I should say um, duplicates um, and you know one needs to be repealed uh, and consolidated under another and that's what this is um, basically this regulation would combine specific entry rules for Ballard and allow for closure of areas during flood events and the entry rules in this regulation are similar to those described in other waterfowl uh, WMAs under KAR 2222. So there's no reason for a standalone regulation and relevant portions could be moved under a single a KAR, Kentucky Admin Reg, if this particular reg was repealed. So 4020 could be moved under 2222. It's just a cleanup of admin regulation. And uh, it, it was uh, voted on and passed, so it'll be an action item um, next commission meeting in March. Um, the next one was quite similar. Uh, it was reference 301KAR4050 and would be uh, effective in fall of 2021. And it would repeal 301KAR4050 and move relevant portions of that KAR into 301KAR2222. And basically, as with the Ballard regulation, this particular regulation contains specific entry rules for the Swan Lake unit of Boatwright. It also includes specific camping rules and a limit on use of firearms and hunting bullfrogs. The bottom line is it's a duplicate of another admin reg. And when you have duplicate admin regs, the reason that these things should be consolidated and made, and made concise and easy is it confuses the sportsman. It confuses me. It's hard for me to even read them to you. And I've got the notes in front of me. So when we have, you know, multiple Kentucky admin, administrative regulations under uh, single uh, Kentucky revised statutes that are basically duplicates, it, it gets quite confusing. It's even hard to read it to you. And so what we're trying to do here is move relevant portions um, of 4050 under 2222, and it pertains to Swan Lake unit of Boatwright. And again... If this is extremely important to you, please go uh, to, you know, uh, 
the uh, Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources website. Look up this agenda. If, if you can't find it, email me, ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at theslowhunt.com, and I will help you get to this, and you can read it for yourself, and you can come back and ask me questions, and you should ask, before you ask me questions, you should ask your district commissioner questions. So anyway, moving on to the next discussion item. Um, this one was very interesting, Ben. This was um, on depredation permits, and this basically came up uh, in association with or, or in conjunction with um, the wanton waste deal. Um, again, the wanton waste um, Kentucky administrative regulation that's being uh, that was voted yay in this quarterly meeting by the Fish and Wildlife Commission will promulgate an administrative regulation. Last year during the legislative session there was a bill request to actually make a law for wanton waste. That did not make it across the finish line. So your Fish and Wildlife Commissioners decided to um, at least make an administrative regulation against wanton waste which could be enforced by our game wardens or our conservation officers. Um, but in you know basically juxtaposed to that is uh, depredation permits or deer control tags and deer destruction permits so an interesting discussion uh, came up and it became a discussion item it was new business last quarter and of course became a discussion item uh, this quarter and uh, basically it's under 301 kar 2176 informational item on depredation permits a description will be provided regarding depredation permits process prescribed by kentucky law and how kentucky hunters for the hungry could be promoted in administering these permits landowners that are experiencing deer damage are always encouraged to incorporate deer hunting into the management of deer on their property when the scenario allows it in addition to deer hunting, landowners can utilize the following methods to mitigate deer. They can use deer control tags, where a biologist and a conservation officer conduct an on-site damage inspection. And uh, those uh, deer control tags are for R4 antlerless deer only. And the deer control tags are distributed to the landowner, who could then give them to anyone who has a valid hunting license to hunt and or kill and control the deer on that property. Um, then you have deer destruction permits. Those are issued to landowners who continue to experience damage after they've used the deer control tags and whose property cannot be hunted, meaning the landowner are required to utilize hunting as a means to reduce the deer uh, prior to receiving the deer destruction permits. And uh, deer destruction permits are intended to be used outside the season framework established. So basically, the way it works is, if you are a landowner, um, generally um, an agricultural crop producer, but also for um, tree farmers. So if you're a tree farmer... Um, you know, who runs, you know, either a nursery or an orchard, um, buck deer can uh, and have rubbed enough trees to reduce the value of those trees by tens of thousands of dollars in certain nurseries. It's just a natural thing that buck deer do when they're rubbing the velvet off their antlers and when they're trying to mark their territory prior to uh, peak rut or peak breeding. Um, and so it doesn't just have to be row crops 
um, or agriculture or ag producers that are damaged by deer. It's it's quite often also nurseries or tree farms. Regardless, if you're impacted um, by uh, deer in that scenario, um, the department encourages you to use deer control tags and to involve hunters. If you cannot uh, reach the appropriate removal of deer um, on your farm using deer control tags, then deer destruction permits are issued to landowners. And generally speaking, under the law, uh, those landowners are required or they want those landowners to use the deer destruction permits outside of hunting season. And so how Hunters for the Hungry becomes involved in this is the challenge with wanton waste is you don't want hunters to leave anything in the field. Yet we have these destruction permits where um, either a nursery owner or an orchard owner, uh, I guess you'd call them a tree farmer, uh, has a, a very similar problem to a soybean farmer or a corn farmer or hell, a wheat, you know, winter wheat, whatever, um, where the deer are eating a significant uh, portion, uh, probably even uh, Kentucky vineyards, you know, where they're eating some of the grapes. Regardless, you're you're a farmer of some variety, and, and the deer are, are causing destruction because they're present in your farm or on your farm in too great a number, and you need to reduce those numbers. And so if you're using the um, depredation uh, system, uh, you know, if you are... Uh, using either the deer control tags or the deer destruction permits, it's quite often the case that the animal lays and dies and the meat's not used. So what your commission is trying to do is find a way to encourage landowners to contact Hunters for the Hungry and to also find a way to get, um, you know, concerned hunters or conservation groups out there on the landscape when they do shoot these uh, deer that are causing damage uh, to, you know, be able to field dress those deer and get them to a processor because right now that's not happening. So this was a very interesting discussion item. Uh, it, it was talked about in length and uh, obviously if we have wanton waste and we don't want hunters to waste, then we don't want uh, farmers or ag producers who are using deer control tags or deer destruction permits to waste. And the caveat to that waste was could they be uh, field dressed, could the meat be cared for properly, and could they be donated to Hunters for the Hungry? So it was a very interesting discussion item. Uh, it passed, and it will be moved on to um, an action item uh, in the near future. Um, the next discussion item was uh, the Fisheries Division uh, under 301KAR1152 uh, recommends that... Uh, uh, certain provisions be added to the Asian carp harvest program to improve its efficiency and effectiveness. And I think we can all um, agree that we need to remove as many Asian carp as we can uh, as, a, as an invasive that um, really um, gets involved in our aquatic ecology at the food chain level. Uh, you know, at the at the near microscopic food chain level, because they're filter feeders, and and they basically, you know, Asian or silverfin carp basically take out the planktonic level and and really affect our um, our uh, our aquatic ecology in a very negative way. So basically, this was a discussion item. 
under KAR, or excuse me, under 301 KAR 1152 that would take in the that would take effect in the fall of 2021. And the Fisher Division recommended amending the current regulation to allow Asian Carp Harvest Program to improve its efficiency and effectiveness. It would clean up some definitions. It would allow commercial fishers to set their nets in a in a more efficient fashion. Um, it would uh, allow commercial fishers uh, different ways to mark their nets and uh, and just make things a lot easier and a lot more efficient. And um, one of the things that uh, I learned uh, during this um, uh, discussion item, uh, which came from the fisheries division, is that uh, last year the uh, Kentucky Fish Center processed 4.12 million pounds of uh Asian carp or silverfin carp. And so this discussion item passed on to become an action item uh, in March. Uh, the next discussion item was the uh, under uh, 301KAR1400 and would be effective in fall of 2021. And the fisheries, fisheries division recommended updating the material incorporated by reference portion of this regulation, which is used to assess fish kill replacement values to reflect the newest edition of the publication. <coughs> so the bottom line here is, and this is, this is, you know, we try not to editorialize, but this is upsetting to a lot of people. Our current regulation is very old. It is not even in compliance with um, the 2017 edition of the American Fisheries Society Special Publication 35 Investigation and Monetary Values of Fish and Freshwater Mollusk Kills. I'll say that again. Our current regulation is not even in compliance with the 2017 edition of the American Fisheries Society Special Publications 35 Investigation and Monetary Values of Fish and Freshwater Mollusk Kills. And why is this important to us? Well, last year we had, and we all love our bourbon industry. We all love our bourbon industry. Last year we had a terrible accident at a rickhouse or multiple rickhouses. And that bourbon and that contaminant went into the Kentucky River and it basically killed miles and miles of the river and we suffered damage that is going to take years to fix and the bourbon industry did everything they could do to pay reparations but the bill that our department handed them was based on a manual that is over 10 years old. So anybody that looks at value, if I was to say, I will buy your house for what it was worth 10 years ago, you would look at me and tell me I was crazy, Ben. You'd say, you're nuts. I'm not selling you my house for what it was 10 years ago. Right. But, but the bourbon industry had an accident. And I'm sure, I'm sure their insurance covered it. And I'm sure that they're terribly upset that it ever happened. And it killed a huge swath of the aquatic uh, life and, and, and just completely degraded the aquatic ecosystem in the Kentucky River for miles and miles. But the bill they were given was based on a manual given 
to them by our department that is well over 10 years old. And here's the part that was upsetting to your nine commission members. We're going to update it with a manual that's 2017. It's already three years old. So this is an economic issue. It's not a biological issue. And, you know, um, the fisheries division wants to update the this Kentucky Administrative Regulation 301-KAR-1400 to reflect the most recent publication, which is 2017. But there was a significant discussion amongst the commissioners as to how we could link this to some kind of economic indicator. Because already in this commission meeting, we talked about two different fish kills um, where, you know, it's not just the ecology that was impacted. It's the sports and recreation. That entire stretch of Kentucky River is basically unfishable until there's fish back in it. And you can't just stock fish in there. If you just stock fish in there, the fish are going to swim to wherever there's a forage. They're going to swim to wherever there's, you know, crayfish, crawdads, um, aquatic invertebrates, you know, uh, fingerlings of some variety, minnows, chubs. When the when the fish kill happens, it kills everything from the bottom of the food chain to the top. So we can't just go back in there and put smallmouth bass and musky and catfish. There would be nothing for them to eat. So that 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 fishery has got to rebound. And while that fishery is, you know, in complete arrest while it's been killed, there's no recreation going on in that fishery. There's no uh, tourism dollars going into that fishery. So, you know, while the bourbon industry paid the bill and they're very sorry and we all know that they're going to do the best that they could to respond, it was really our Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources giving them the best legal bill that they could. And, and, and the bill was legitimate, but the bill was, you know, based on economic indicators that are over 10 years old. So, you know, this um, discussion item, which will be an action item in March, was to at least update the reference for which those bills are calculated. Again, that reference is the 2017 edition of the American Fisheries Society Special Publication 35, Investigation and Monetary Values of Fish and Freshwater Mollusk Kills. But it's a 2017 reference. So your commissioners are not happy. It's an economic versus biological impact. And this will be moved on to um, the March meeting. And if, and if you really care and want to get involved, then, then talk to your commissioners and, or reach out to me and Ben, and we'll point you in the right directions. Okay, so that was the end of, and time for me to also um, take a deep breath and clear my throat. That was the end of discussion items. <clears throat> Once again, a lot to unpack there. Man, buddy, man, I'm telling you. These meetings take six or eight hours, and you and I try to get this done in an hour and a half. And we talk about what, we talk about what we've been up to. We talk about national issues, and then we try to go into into detail at the state level. And man, it's hard. Okay, so new yeah. new business item number one. Now remember, everybody, um, discussion items will be action items in March. New business items will only be discussion items in March, okay? So these can't be acted on until June, all right? But the first uh, new business item was to investigate the removal of the Great Crossing Dam on the North Fork of Elkhorn Creek in Scott County. And basically, the Ohio River Foundation, some other stakeholders want to remove the Great Crossing Dam. And um, this became a new business item, and, and our commission was asked if they would support it, if they would at least move it to a discussion item, and it passed no problem. 
Um, the next one was um, the um, – this is an interesting one. So for people in the state of Kentucky that um, that think, like, kind of we peaked with our elk and we may have peaked with our turkey and they're not sure if we peaked with our deer hunting, like, opportunity-wise, like our herd's as big as it's going to be and the deer and elk woods and our, our turkeys have kind of got to the point where – you know, it's as good as it's ever going to be. Well, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that has not peaked is bear hunting. And um, <clears throat> we were in a situation, and this is a new business item under 301-KAR-2300, and it would be incorporated in the fall of 2021, and it would create a new bear hunting zone that uh, is Leslie, Perry, and Pike Counties alone. So basically, Leslie, Perry, and Pike County were uh, part of a larger zone, they were uh, uh, part of East Zone 2. And because um, uh, the way the, the bear season works, it's based on a quota of female bears taken. It's I've hunted bears uh, all over the Mountain West. I've hunted them here in Kentucky. I've not been successful in Kentucky, but I've hunted them all over the Mountain West and, and been successful um, with a bow, um, uh, free range. Um uh, bow hunting in the Rockies. Uh, I've hunted them um, with a bow over bait in Colorado, and I've hunted them uh, with a rifle, both free range and over bait in Alaska. And uh, bears are amazing creatures to hunt. And for people that don't understand bear hunting and, and haven't been around it, it's a very, I mean, it's a very rewarding experience. It's exciting. Um, they're apex predators, and, and I could go on. I could do an entire podcast for probably three and a half hours on bears. And and guess what? They eat good, too. If you know how to butcher them, it turns out they eat good, too. Um, so we're going to have expanded bear hunting opportunities here in Kentucky because our bear population is growing. And this is a good news story. So we're um, in new business item 301-KAR-2300. That would take effect in fall of 2021, which would create a new bear hunting zone. Uh, and that bear hunting zone would be Leslie, Perry, and Pike counties only. And the reason for this is um, Larry, uh, excuse me, Leslie, Perry, and Pike counties were part of East Zone 2. And in the first, uh, I believe, 48 hours of this year's bear hunt, um, they reached the quota of two female bears killed. Um, in those three counties, basically uh, cutting the whole 13-county zone off. So those three counties are so well-populated with bears that um, they met the quota quickly and cut the whole 13-county zone completely off for the rest of the year. Anybody who's hunted bears knows, and I feel like I could do it now, but I couldn't have done it 10 years ago. I could... Pretty well, I'd probably give myself a seven. I probably, out of ten bears, if you put ten bears in front of me, I could probably tell you just by looking at them, seven out of ten were uh, boars or sows. It is not easy to do. I would still get that wrong three times out of ten. And I've been hunting them for 10, 12 years. Um, it's tough. So our quote is based on the fact that, you know, a, a hunter's not going to know what they killed until it's laying on the ground. So they go up there and look at it. Oh, my God, it's a sow. There's one down. So there may be five, six more boars killed until the second sow is killed. Once the second sow is killed, the quota for that zone is over. And so what they're trying to do is actually take Leslie, Perry, and Pike counties out of East Zone 2 and make them their own zone 
so there'd be more opportunity. So the it would you know it wouldn't be that those three very highly populated bear counties could shut down the zone for everybody. Um, the next uh, new business item uh, really didn't have a regulation number, um, and uh, it would take effect in fall of 2021, and it was to create a fee-based chronic wasting disease test as a service to deer hunters who wish to have their deer tested by voluntary submission of samples outside the scope of the department's standard surveillance efforts. So bottom line here is this would create an opportunity for hunters to pay $25. It's normally about $45, dollars $55 per deer to get CWD tested, but the department would do an option-based pre-purchase CWD tests for hunters. So basically what you do is you say somehow... When you bought your license, you'd say, yeah, I also think I want to get whatever deer I kill, I want to get them CWD tested. And the department would say, okay, it'll cost you 25 bucks. Well, the reason that they would offer that to you at a discounted rate is, is that your test would also count against their quota or their um, testing numbers required. But you would be doing that because you just wanted your deer personally tested. So right now, if you kill a deer and you give your head to the department, it, it's going to be, you know, not, it's not necessarily the results coming back to you personally. The results go to the department and and, it, and how that works is how it works. This will be for you personally to tag your deer, you know, put your um, telecheck number on it, pay your money, and you personally would get the results for $25. And uh, that actually passed, and that will be a um, discussion item in the future because it was a new business item. Um, there were uh, a couple other new business items um, that got added last minute um, by the uh, um, commissioners. Uh, the first one was uh, in the 4th District. Uh, Mr. Knott um, said that there was an issue with uh, fish being snagged in the spillway below uh, Green River Dam. There's a small concrete box structure right below the dam where... There is a, a canalizing or a channelizing effect of fish coming out, and it is very easy to snag them there, uh, which is illegal. But there is a um, number of lures that um, if you basically fish them the way they're supposed to be fished, especially if you replace the uh, treble hooks that are uh, on the lure when you buy it with a size or two bigger treble hook that you could throw it into that spillway and snag fish and you're you as a quote-unquote fisherman, I wouldn't call you a sportsman if you're snagging fish, but um, you as a quote-unquote sportsman would, um, or fisherman, would be in violation of the law or not. It presents a really, uh, really tough enforcement problem for our conservation officers. Um, but uh, he, uh, Mr. Knott, wanted to add that um, as a uh, new business item um, so that it could become a potential discussion item in March, uh, how that could be cleaned up and potentially, you know, make that, that concrete spillway box off limits to fishing totally or make it single hook only or make it, uh, you know, live bait fishing, something to, to prevent that uh, illegal snagging conundrum that our conservation officers are dealing with with people trying to run the ragged edge of outlaw uh, by putting big treble hooks on smaller baits. Um, then um, there was a couple of other just interesting updates. Uh, Mr. Uh, Morgan from the 8th District, Commissioner Morgan, um, was talking about a public meeting uh, reference Cave Run Lake. Uh, some of the boat ramps 
there during certain times of year, especially with tournaments, get completely overrun. And um, with uh, folks having time off with COVID, there's even more fishermen on the water and the, and the boat ramps are, are just completely uh, crowded and, and there's going to be a public meeting about that. There was no uh, discussion of the date for that, but that that's on the horizon. Um, I can tell everybody that your uh, working groups, um, since the committees, we used to have multiple committees, um, you know, fisheries committee, wildlife committee, public relations committee and such. Uh, those were abolished and, and the new working groups are supposed to be doing their job. Um, the budget w the budget working group, the wildlife management working group um, have met. The uh, elk working group will meet this week. So, so things are moving forward. Um, and... Uh, there was a uh, the last item for the entire meeting was that uh, a CWD, a chronic wasting disease update, was requested um, by uh, one of the commissioners to be given at the March meeting, meaning where we're at with this year's monitoring. Uh, did we have a case? Did we not have a case? It's not been reported. Um, how many samples were collected, how many were, you know, negative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like I just ran like a mile as fast as I could. <laughs> if not a mile, pretty close to it. Yeah. That is a, that is a lot to go over. Yep. And, and I don't, man, you know, and, and it seems like kind of like a long thing for us to talk about. But, you know, these commissioners, man, they got to talk to their constituents. Uh, the chair of the commission, Carl Kleiner, is going to work with, you know, legislators and lawyers and the attorney general and and uh, all his other eight commissioners, because he's also the eighth district commissioner, even though he's the chair of the commission. I mean, these guys got a lot of work to do between a quarter. <laughs> oh yeah. And excuse me. And and to try to get this all done in, you know, six to eight hours is, is tough. And and you know, when I'm sitting through six to eight hours of a meeting and taking notes, I'm like, dear God, it's a long meeting. But then you think about it, it's it's ninety days of the department's business, of the sportsmen and the sportswomen's business. So um you know, in retrospect, I'm 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 very um thankful that, that these folks are willing to do it because they're all volunteers. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Any anything you want to talk about on all the stuff I just covered? Because I cover it so fast, we don't stop to talk, or we'd never get done. Uh, one one question I have, just because I have I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I grew I grew up on a farm, but it was tobacco farm, so it wasn't anything, you know, ag related to where we would have uh, the depredation permits. Are those good for year round or? Is that just like regular hunting seasons? You can only use those. Um, so the interesting thing about that is, is, is it's really a, it's really kind of a two tiered process. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, um, the biologists in the department want the landowners to try to use the deer control tags first where they involve hunters and they can transfer those deer control tags. So let's say you, you, you and I own a farm and we're partners on that farm and it's corn and soybeans. It's 500 acres and we get 50 deer control tags a year. <laughs> they want us to invite as many hunters on the property as we can and we can transfer those 50 tags. Gotcha. If, by, if by the end of the season that did not accomplish our stated 
um, herd, deer herd reduction goals. You know, let, let's say we were, let's say we were mature enough deer herd managers that we even had a buck to doe ratio. Like we did, you know, camera surveys and we had a duck buck to doe ratio number and we were cataloging all this and we we're being extremely good stewards of the resource. <clears throat> And we still didn't accomplish our goals with the deer control tags. Then we would request and be issued deer destruction permits. And those would be for after the season. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and so, um, you know, it, it's, it's really a zone one issue. Um, you know, I, I, I have property in uh, zone one that's three county, two, one, two, three counties removed from the Ohio. And it's it's fairly well populated. I have property in uh, right on the border. I have two farms. They're both very small, but uh, one is um uh, one's in Owen County, one's in Green County, and, and you know I don't see the deer like I see in you know Ohio, Muhlenberg, um, Oldham. I don't see those deer. Um, I have friends, and I have the privilege to hunt sometimes with them that have private land in those areas. And uh, it is nothing when the sun comes up in some of those ag fields, you know, down in Muhlenberg, Ohio County, for there to be 20 to 25 deer in a field. Um, And you think you think about, you know, throughout the night, that was probably, you know, 60 percent of what was out there that night. So you're looking at 30 to 40 deer that were out there that night all grazing. Well, if those were cattle in in a in a row crop field, you know, it'd be it'd be a huge financial loss so you know you know deer are no different so i understand the predicament those folks are in but 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 where we're at with that is is we really um and this is something i talked to you know i'm I'm fortunate to have been recently appointed to the board at hunters for the hungry i think it's important that conservation organizations like you know qdma which is now the national deer alliance and safari kentucky safari club and um, Kentucky and Safari Club, excuse me, and you know other conservation organizations in the state of Kentucky, Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, potentially think about doing you know um, mentor deer hunts on these Zone One overpopulated ag properties, because if we were to link up those farm owners with conservation organizations, and the farm owner could just hand you ten deer control tags. There's 10 deer that you could take off of their property, and you're in compliance with department regulation and law. You're also doing what the biologist would want you to do, which is use the deer control tags versus the destruction permits. So there's an opportunity here for for conservation organizations to, to fill in the gap and help some of these ag farms and these ag producers um, accomplish their deer uh, herd management goals. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's a big opportunity here in the future. Oh yeah, I like the sound of that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am I am mentoring two guys right now, and and uh, I've been putting them on private farms where it's you know mostly like big timber hunting, and there's no row crops whatsoever. And I'm trying to teach them the the old school way of deer hunting, and we might see a deer, we might not, we might see five deer, we might not, and They've yeah. they've gotten two opportunities all year, and then I find about these ag properties along the Ohio, <laughs> along the Ohio kind of in the western part of the state, what we call the Penny Ryle region, and the Penny mm-hmm. Ryle region, the state where 
the sun comes up and there's three dozen deer in the field. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. We got to get these guys down there because <laughs> teaching, you know, once they learn to hunt them out there, they can certainly hunt them in the big woods. And, uh, right, right. Or at least they'll understand how to, how to field dress them and debone them and stuff. You know, that's really the, the last lesson, the on the ground lesson is, uh, yeah. you know, once one's on the ground, you got to learn how to use what you just, what you've just killed. Enough to where they would feel comfortable to do it by themselves. Absolutely, yeah. buddy. Um, so that was uh, that was one of our longer ones, but there was a lot going on, and and it's I don't think it's ever going to get less than you know if we get one of these less than an hour and a half, we'll be we'll be really cooking with gas because um, you know our commission has a lot of work to do every ninety days, and and it's all I can do to report it, much less us get to talk about it. You know, if, right. you, if you and I stopped and talked about all those potential wildlife regulations, we'd be here six hours just like the commission. Oh, yeah. Maybe more. Yep, maybe more. Uh, you got any final thoughts, buddy, to close the show? Um, nope, I don't believe so. Well, I'll tell you what we need to rectify. You and I did not get to duck hunt together last year, although no, we, we talked about it. And uh, I got some public land duck holes that I'm dying to give you, which most people would think I was a nut job for giving, <laughs> for, for for burning my for burning my public land spots. But but uh, you're the closest thing to a younger brother I've got. My real younger brother doesn't hunt, so you know I love him, but he you know he doesn't count. Uh, right. So uh, I don't really have any final thoughts either. Um, I, I can tell you I'm proud of our, our new young commissioners, uh, Josh Littered, Littered in the 5th and Robbie Lear in the 6th. Um, they're doing a great job, and it's an intimidating job, especially for you know young or very early middle-aged men because this is generally the, um, the purview – of uh, older, more accomplished gentlemen. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm encouraged and uh, happy that we have uh, younger uh, representation on the commission now, not just uh, Mr. Fisher in the second, but also uh, Mr. Lillard in the fifth and Mr. Lear in the sixth. So that's kind of my final thought is, is I'm happy to see some younger uh, representation on the commission. And um, we'll go from there. Um as usual, I need to thank Mr. Grayson Jenkins, who's a, a good friend of yours. Uh, he is a talented uh, young man and a great musician, and uh, he has graciously allowed us to use uh, his music to open and close our show. And so if anybody uh, who hears our um, podcast uh, enjoys the opening and closing of the show, and uh, you, you think that music sounded good, like I do, and like uh, uh, my partner in crime, Ben, does, then look up Mr. Grayson Jenkins. Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky, and Jenkins, like Jenkins. Just look him up on YouTube, Grayson Jenkins, and uh, you'll hear more music than you ever wanted to see. He's a very, very talented young man. Um, and then if, if anybody really needs any upfitting for their pickup truck or their SUV, um um, Walter at Louisville Toppers, uh, 4040 Preston Highway in Louisville. That's uh, www.louisvilletoppers.com. Um, you know, the city of Louisville, L-O-U-I-S-V-I-L-L-E-T-O-P-P-E-R-S. Um, Walter doesn't pay me anything, but what he will do, since he's been, been doing work for me for years and we're good friends, is he will give any listener to this podcast a discount. That's why I bring it up every podcast. 
you need a, a capper or a tonneau cover or running boards or, or something to that effect for your vehicle. If you go see Walter at Louisville Toppers and you tell him that Colonel Abel or Ben Bishop from the uh, State of the Outdoors podcast sent you over there, he will give you a discount. Um, so that's that. Um, you know, uh, if you really are concerned with any of the national issues that Ben brought up, um, you know, the uh, expanding Veterans Opportunity Outdoors deal, uh, you know, if you're concerned about what was the Pebble Mine, any of those national issues, I mean any of those national issues, you can really connect and find out a lot about those national issues, and you can easily take action to contact your legislators at the federal level by going to www.backcountryhunters.org. Backcountryhunters, all one word, .org. And just on the website, there's easy take action, you know, buttons. Uh, and, and you can look it up and see what's going on at the national level. At the state level, Kentucky Anna Safari Club has a website. It's www.kysci-lac.com. And uh, those guys in the Legislative Affairs Committee over there, uh, full disclosure, I'm a member of that committee, uh, work really hard to evaluate all the legislation that comes out of your um, state uh, House or Senate as a bill request and then goes through the process to become law. And folks, we're getting ready to go into a legislative session here in January. And it's not just going to be a budget session. There will be laws um, requiring appropriation um, promulgated. So that's a place to look uh, for your state um, issues and legislation. Um, if you've got issues you'd like to discuss with me, if there's things we went over too quickly, uh, you can contact me at ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at the slow hunt, all one word, theslowhunt.com. And you can contact Ben at? Bishop at theslowhunt.com. B-I-S-H-O-P, Bishop at the slow That's right. And remember, folks, this podcast is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network. And slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Until next time. Thanks for listening. One, two.